Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The Canadian province of Alberta is home to the oil sands, a vast subarctic region that is rich in crude oil and which has been a focus of controversy for decades over the environmental and climate impacts of the fossil fuel mining that takes place there. Controversy around the oil sands has extended across the border here to the United States, where the now-canceled Keystone XL pipeline was intended to transport the region's heavy oil, known as bitumen, southward to refineries along the Gulf Coast. Despite the pipeline's cancellation, oil sands mining continues. On today's podcast, we're going to zoom in from a national perspective on oil sands development to one of local community impact. The community of Little Buffalo is located in a remote section of the westernmost portion of the oil sands in northern Alberta. It is home to the Lubicon Cree, an indigenous nation that has found itself bordered by oil sands development over which it has had little influence and from which it has derived little benefit, yet which has led to environmental damages that have disrupted the community's traditional way of life and livelihoods. Today's guest is Melina Labukin Massimo, a member of the Lubicon Cree who has for more than a decade been an activist on behalf of indigenous communities that have been impacted by the development of fossil fuels. Her television program, Power to the People, explores the power of clean energy to empower First Nation communities. On this podcast, we're going to discuss the impacts of fossil fuel development on Indigenous communities and efforts to counter those impacts through advocacy and clean energy development. Melina is the co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action, a climate fellow at the David Suzuki Foundation and founder of Sacred Earth Solar. Melina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I wonder if you could start us out by describing the community you're from, Little Buffalo in Northern Alberta. So I'm from a small indigenous community that is in Northern Alberta in Canada. If anybody that's listening has been to Calgary, um, it is about an eight hour drive from there north. And so I'm from what you would call the Boreal Forest, um, the northern lungs of Mother Earth. It is forest area. It's a pristine old growth forest that is right where my family and community lives. And that's where I was born. And it is actually also surrounded by immense oil, gas, logging, fracking, and tar sands extraction. So it has. Um, it's a very beautiful area, but it is very threatened area as well. What if you could tell uh, tell us how has the landscape changed over the time that the oil sands development has been going on, and when did that begin? In our area, so in certain parts of, so we're talking about a huge area when we talk about the Alberta tar sands. We're talking about one hundred forty one thousand square kilometers, so as big as the state of Florida. So that's twenty three percent of the province of Alberta. And within that, there's multiple communities stretched, you know, far and wide, it takes hours and hours to drive from different communities. So the community that I live in, they started extraction around the late 70s, early 80s, just before I was born. And it's, um, yeah, the 
the change to the landscape is immense in many of the areas, um, you know, where our families could drink water from the rivers and streams and hunt. And there was, you know, not content. It was very pristine and the very vibrant, thriving ecosystems. Fast forward till now and across, you know, my childhood into my life, it's, it's drastically changed with a lot of cut lines and industry, heavy industry in and around the areas and communities. Um, so the impact is immense um, to the area. It's, we're talking about drained and polluted waterways, contaminated air, fragmentation of, of the boreal forest, which is the last one of the last remaining um, intact forests in the north of the world, in really in the world. And um, yeah, the, it's just kind of like pretty stark contract of devastation that has happened in the past 30 to 40 years. And I understand that the Lubicon Cree community was a traditional community that had lived primarily off of hunting, off of the land, and that has been disrupted. Is that right? Yeah, disrupted. People still try to do it. You know, my family still tries to do it. My dad's a hunter, but it's harder and harder to find moose. Um, and also because the forest has been either devastated by deforestation or fragmented. Um, we have studies that have been shown to by 2040. So within the next, you know, number of years, there will be the the caribou that many people in the north are dependent upon in these areas will be locally extirpated or locally ex extinct. Um, so there's big impact to the land, um, to the water and to the animals. So that really affects the people's ability to have country foods and to live in a sustainable, healthy way, especially if things are being contaminated. My dad, for instance, when he went hunting, he found a moose that was, you know, completely yellow inside with them, with the, because, because of the contamination of, of the moose eating, you know, the different conifers and different trees, um, deciduous trees and all the different types of trees that they eat throughout the year. Um, and because of uh, local industry um, having pollution that goes into the air and then falls onto the vegetation, um, we see, you know, impact to the animals and also to the humans with elevated rates of cancers. So my understanding is that this development uh, of, of the oil mining pretty much happened without uh, formal input from the Lubicon Cree community. This was basically done without your input. And, and I want to reference a report from Amnesty International on the Lubicon Cree that appeared a number of years ago. And the report discusses the initial planning of the oil or tar sands development in the 1970s. And it says that at the time, and here's a quote, the provincial government dismissed their objections, calling the Lubicon merely squatters on provincial crown land with no land rights to negotiate. The UN Human Rights Committee also reported that the Lubicon Cree land was used for logging and oil and gas development without consulting the community. And it urged the government to negotiate a settlement with the community, but the government continued to sell leases on Lubicon land, again, without consulting the community. To what extent has your community and other indigenous communities in the area been recognized and given a seat at the table uh, in this development? Well, I mean, it's challenging because a seat at the table just means an impact benefit agreement. So it's an IBA that communities sign and essentially says there's this much destruction that's going to be happening in your homelands that's going to have an impact 
to you. So, you know, IBA impact benefit agreement. So acknowledging that there's impact and then somehow that's a, there's a benefit just in the financial um, doling out of a certain amount of funds, which are to be quite honest, are quite low compared to, you know, the amount of revenue that's actually being extracted out of the land. Um, so that's, you know, it's, it's the, the type of engagement and consultation that we're talking about is, is incredibly uh, sub um, par uh, to say the least. And it, and it's a very challenging um, situation to be put in because essentially communities are becoming economic hostages in their own lands where the only industry that is in and around our communities, which is in fact in having immense impact to the land, air, water, quality of life, um, locks people into that very um, industry. And so um, the government likes to say that there's, you know, these IBAs and there's a there's a benefit, but it's literally like take it or leave it. That's the situation that's happening, unfortunately. And um, you know, you can go back into the history of the the NRTA, so the Natural Resources Transfers Act, which was in the 19, which was in ni- the 1930s, where the federal so treaties in Canada were signed, even in our territory. And Treaty Eight is where we're talking about in the tar sands, um, but treaties one to eleven across the country were signed with Indigenous peoples to ensure that Indigenous peoples had a say and that we still had the ability to fish, hunt and trap and be um, on our lands and, you know, active participants in them, participants in determining what was happening in our territories. And then the NRTA happened where there was a transfer of subsurface rights from the federal government, which Indigenous nations signed federal treaties with, and that it basically... Um, negated those treaties to a certain extent, even though treaties are very much referenced and used within federal law and constitutional law here in the country, um, with many court cases being won by Indigenous communities throughout decades of um, asserting rights and title. And actually, Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution shows that there, you know, that's where Indigenous um, rights and title are enshrined um, in Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution. So there's there's a lot of legal um, precedents that have happened, but yet the, still the NRTA um, transfers these subsurface rights without consultation or consent of Indigenous communities who have pre-signed these treaties, you know, in the 1800s, early 1900s, you know, three, three decades later, the federal government's decides, you know, to um, give subsurface rights to provinces. And so then you see provinces starting doling out leases to companies without the consent of the communities. And so this is where you have a lot of legal battles happening and not only legal battles, but then also confrontations between Indigenous communities and the state. And this is where we have an eruption, say what happened in my community in 1988, where there was massive protests and blockades. It became an internationally known issue. It was, you know, they boycotted the Calgary Olympic is in the 88s. They traveled all around the world, our um, leadership and, you know, to let the world know that Indigenous rights and titles were in fact being violated. Um, So these are the types of issues that we still see happening and playing out today. Well, I want to go back to 1988. Interesting you bring it up. Uh, I'm no expert on this, but I did some research and I know that uh, 1988 was the date of the Grimshaw Accord. Uh, mm-hmm. under which the Alberta government promised to transfer 200 square kilometers of land to the Lubicon Cree 
to establish uh, a reserve with full resource rights. Um, as of a decade ago, which is the, the most recent information I found on that, that land I don't think had been uh, transferred and no final settlement had been reached. What's the current status of that? So, yeah, again, a lot of promises and little action and a lot of frustration, as you can imagine. But um, within the past uh, number of years, that actually there has been an agreement that's been reached, but it literally took 70 years. <laughs> so um, my dad actually is a chief and and they've and they um, finally concluded and, and we do have a land settlement um, that was signed with the Notley government of in Alberta and the federal government, obviously. Um, so we have now become, we were unseated. So we actually never signed treaty, um, like, much like the West Coast, West Coast nations in British Columbia that have never signed it in treaty and never ceded to any agreement. Um, that's what the Lubicon were. Um, and so our community just, you know, as of the past number of years has now signed treaty and has become, you know, in, amended into that treaty, but we are um, Lubicon and in our territories. So I, it's it's just a recognition of Indigenous peoples have always been in our homelands for millennia, for thousands of years, and we have new settlers on the in in our territories now for 150 years. And these are the types of things that play out um, with colonial law that now is you know um, being asserted on top of Indigenous law. So we've talked a little bit about the environmental destruction that's come from the uh, oil development. We've talked about some of the damage to the community and the social fabric as well. Now, I want to talk about your advocacy work. What is your vision for justice for Indigenous communities? And I guess since we're you know an, an energy policy podcast here, what if you could define energy and environmental justice for your community? Yeah, I mean, I think as as you'll hear from many Indigenous peoples that you speak to, it's about um, Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination for that reason, because Indigenous peoples for, you know, for 150 years plus in this country and in America, you know, for hundreds, you know, hundreds of years more than that, there has been a constant imposition of how Indigenous peoples should live, speak, talk, walk, look, be, or not exist at all. Um, and so, you know, we've seen genocide both in America and in Canada um, upon Indigenous peoples. And there's there's a big impact with that, um, as you mentioned, it tearing apart the social fabric of the Indigenous governance and structures and systems that were in place that were very, you know, we, we lived in a very vibrant, healthy community there was interaction and reciprocity with the land. It wasn't by coincidence that the land was lush and beautiful and like vibrant, these ecosystems within North America. And yet, you know, fast forward to present day where we have ecosystems literally collapsing. And so for a lot of Indigenous peoples, including myself, it is about being able to yet again determine our own ways of understanding and being within our own homelands and how we interact with our own homelands. But there's been a constant imposition of, you know, uh, colonial policy, energy policy, um, legal colonial rule and law, um, and very detrimental um, social policy that has really torn apart the fabric of communities. And so 
it's it's a rebuilding um, at this point in time from that history that is still carrying out present day to address the the wrongs that have been happening, but also to try to build new solutions. You know what we're all dealing with right now, you know across the globe is is the climate crisis, and so how do we address the climate crisis within these colonial um, contexts? And so that's you know, what we're doing. And so that's for me a visioning of why I would start building solar projects. Um, in communities that wouldn't have accessibility to these a lot of the times we're again at the end of the line a majority of the time for these things even though the revenue and the impact to the land comes from you know has impact on their land from resource extraction and yet a lot of the revenue that's generated and pulled out of the land doesn't go back to those communities so how do we enact a just transition? How do we transition communities that have been facing the brunt of environmental degradation to be able to transition alongside, you know, people that can buy electric cars? Um, all of the things that we see, the electrification of the grid, yet a lot of times it's the, it's the those far to reach areas, the remote communities that are, again, going to be the last to receive the benefit, even though we're um, shouldering the brunt of the extractivism that's happening in our homelands. Well, it seems to me like there are, there are kind of two energy-related issues here, right? One is the opportunity that clean energy, renewable energy provides to the community, but the other is the ongoing reality of these uh, tar sands developments going on around Little Buffalo and other communities. On the fossil fuel development side is the advocacy uh, focus on land rights, focus on stopping fuel development, is it on sharing revenue from that development so that the communities get more benefit? I wonder if you could tell me about that. Well, for my advocacy specifically, um, is very much connected to the climate crisis. So knowing that when we are extracting from our homelands, when we are you know extracting coal or oil, gas, tar sands, LNG, um, that there is an impact to the climate, and so um, so you know it's. We can really connect colonialism, create a part of creating climate change, just like capitalism and the kind of the business model that we are currently existing in um, is, is, is exacerbating the climate crisis. So we definitely need to understand the system as a whole to really address the issues of inequity, but also address the issues of climate justice. And so for me as an Indigenous person, it is it is not necessarily about getting a piece of the pie. It's, it's definitely about ensuring communities um, are able to, again, determine how they want to exist within their own homeland. So if they want to transition to having solar a solar farm within their community or a wind farm what type of policy needs to exist within those provincial or federal structures to ensure that communities can transition um so for me it's it's about policy you know like advocating for robust progressive energy policy but it's also ensuring that we are stopping at the source that we really do need to ensure that not only companies, but banks um, and governments um, are not exacerbating the issues of the climate crisis when in fact they need to be leaders to lead us out of the climate crisis, but by doubling down on extractivism, that is, is it's the opposite direction that we need to be going. And I think 
you know, we see um, a lot of my advocacy has brought me into Europe um, for the past 15 years across Canada, across America. Um, I've testified before U.S. Congress, you know, in ter- uh, to stop the KXL pipeline, which comes from our homelands in Alberta that would feed the tar sands. It was a tar sands pipeline. So there's, uh, it's about understanding that there's human rights violations happening alongside the exacerbation of climate change, alongside the degradation of our homelands, you know, alongside the the human rights and the indigenous rights issues. So it's, it's all connected and you can't really separate one from the other. And so my advocacy has always focused on all of it. Um, it can't just be one thing. And it's in it for me, um, the benefits do not outweigh the impact. And so for me, I'm never going to be that person to advocate that we need to have a bigger piece of the pie. It's it's more that we need to all bake a different pie <laughs> and yeah. we need to, we need to ensure that we are transitioning and and what does that transition look like and that transition in my opinion and that's why we call it just a just transition because we can transition but that transition doesn't necessarily have to be just and if we're just re um perpetu- like perpetuating and like redoing the same systems of harm that the previous system did with resource extraction that we do with renewable energy then we're no better and so it, it really is about looking at the system as a whole and understanding the structural inequities that play into the energy policies. And so how do we address the energy policies to ensure that they ensure equity, that they ensure um, collective ownership and participation for communities that have been kept out of these decision-making places and spaces for far too long? As I understand, you're working on a just transition guide, and I believe it addresses the pros and cons of renewable energy development. Can you tell us a little bit more what would be the bad scenario or the the undesired scenario going forward with renewable energy? And a little bit more specifically, mm-hmm. how could Indigenous communities be more involved in the process and what would that mean for them? Mm-hmm. Well, say for instance, let, like let's make a hypothetical, hypothetical like scenario where which they're not hypothetical, like this very real life scenarios in terms of like, so say, an indigenous community like mine or many others, we we even have a stat that Amnesty International helped you know to to do the research on where fourteen billion dollars has left our traditional territory in oil and gas revenues, right? And that has left the community. And this was a stat that was, you know, it's a decade old. So the $14 billion a decade ago, that's a lot of money, but yet my community still went without running water, without paved roads, without a library, without, you know, when I moved to to the city to go to university, I was like paved roads, swimming pools, libraries, running water, housing, that isn't, you know, falling apart and decrepit. So there's there's a lot of again inequities that exist within the current model. Moving forward, what would we want to see in terms of having a just transition? That means we need to have robust renewable energy policy that actually ensures that communities are benefiting from the type of energy production happening on their homelands, which we haven't seen with fossil fuel extraction. Or very, you know, like I said, an IBA, which is is like is not sufficient for the amount of impact communities are shouldering. So when we go towards a renewable energy transition, how do we ensure that communities that are in the far north or the communities that are remote, communities that are indigenous or non-indigenous are receiving 
the benefit of having the production of energy happening on their homelands. And so what we've seen in the past, even with renewable energy policy or lack thereof, is say a 1% ownership, even though we have some energy, like a say, say let's use wind turbines, for example. I've heard of an example here on the West Coast where one you the community gets 1% um, revenue stream and ownership from that wind turbine. And the and the company or the energy partner gets 99%. And so for me, it that that isn't a significant benefit. And that's similar to what we've seen in the tar sands where, you know, it's it's literally very, very abysmal amounts of, of quote, benefit in the financial streams back into the community. And majority of the revenue leaves the community along with the resource of the extractivism, say a tar sands, um, a tar sands mine. For instance, but when we fast forward to now, what, what do we need to see in a robust renewable energy policy is to ensure that communities have equity and have um, ownership and participation within those projects that are being proposed and developed on their homelands and or shouldn't be developed if they have the, the community should have the ability to say no. And that's that's one thing that we've been sorely lacking. And so that's why if you look at the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in Section 32, Free Prior and Informed Consent, FPIC, that talks about communities' ability to say no or should have the ability to say no. And that hasn't happened with extractivism. When we talk about renewable energy, we need to ensure that communities are consenting to these types of projects and not only consenting, but want to be active participants and owners within that renewable energy system. And that's what we're seeing changing here north of the medicine line in so-called Canada. We are seeing a a changeover where we have communities being 49% owners of a solar farm or 49 or 51% owners of a wind farm. And so we're actually seeing active participation, we're seeing consent, and then we're also seeing revenue generation um, from a renewable energy system. So for me, that's what a just transition needs to look like um, when communities are being actually involved and that there's policy that supports communities to have that involvement in a way that is equitable. In 2015, you started your own solar company, Sacred Earth Solar. And I, I believe that company has built a community solar project in, in Little Buffalo. Uh, could you talk about that project and, and what it's brought to the community? Yeah, so this was before ener- like renewable energy policy was you know, it was in existence in the province of Alberta where I lived. They did have a microgeneration application that you could connect to grid with small scale renewable energies, but not large scale. But so what I decided to do as a part of my master's thesis was to build a solar project that powers our health center in the heart of the tar sands. And that for me was very exploratory because it, we, again, we didn't have, there was very little funding. I didn't, I, I had to fundraise outside of, I didn't receive, I didn't receive, or there wasn't anything to apply for, for government funding. There, I didn't apply um, to any corporations, um, especially that had, that were oil and gas. And so it was very, it was very limited amount to be able to fundraise from. So I was fundraising for a few years just to be able to 
you know, buy the solar equipment, the panels, um, to hire all the people that we needed to hire to train community members. And it was, um, it took about, it took a few years, but it, um, I started my thesis in 2013 and then finished in 2015. And we put up the solar projects, a 20.8 kilowatt system, and it is connected to grid and it powers the house center. And it was, it was one of the first um, larger solar projects and that's not even that large comparatively speaking, but it was probably one of the largest in our area. Um, and it was the first time actually people in our community had seen solar panels in real life. So it was, and this is 2015. Um, and so that was a really exciting project because it spurred on, yeah, the starting of Sacred Earth Solar, which, you know, is Indigenous led organization that that allows and supports other Indigenous communities, including my own, to be able to transition and try to not, um, to learn how to use solar on-grid, off-grid, um, and and get away from diesel if that's what communities are using. And so um, Sacred or Solar is, is a part of, of kind of a burgeoning Indigenous energy uh, transition that's happening, you know, in connection with other organizations that I work with. Your TV show in Canada, Power to the People, focuses on the importance of renewable uh, energy in empowering communities. You, you just mentioned diesel. I, I looked at a few short clips, all that's available here in the United States, and I saw that there are many different projects that you take a look at, all involving Indigenous communities and, and the potential of renewable energy. Yeah, one of the organizations I've worked with, I'm on the National Executive Steering Committee, um, it's called Indigenous Clean Energy, and they've done amazing research where there is literally close to 300 different renewable energy projects that are Indigenous-led across this country, and probably at least 200 of them being medium to large-scale um, renewable energy. So we're talking about revenue-generating uh, projects. Um, and so I was able to visit um, a number of these. We went to 26 locations across the country. Um, and it was amazing. And we, we toured solar farms, wind farms, small scale, large scale, biomass, run of the river, um, geo exchange, uh, microgrids. Um, we visited communities that had finished the implementation point. So it wasn't just talking about the solutions, but actually implementing the solutions. And it was just, was from coast to coast to coast, um, from the north to the south, um, the far reaches of the different parts of the country, um, different indigenous nations, all leading the way towards a clean energy future. And it was a really exciting show to host and to be able to go into communities, be welcomed into communities and learn about what those communities are doing from within. Again, it's the the just transition needs to ensure that it is community led. So we have indigenous leaders within the community determining what the problems are and therefore they know intimately what the solutions are and so the implementation of not only renewable energy but eco housing and also food security systems a few minutes ago you you noted how important it is that there's meaningful participation from communities and community members in the whole process uh, of you know planning for the communities, w- what the future looks like, what's allowed, what's not, what the vision is, and I, I just want to bring up something. Uh, this spring on this podcast, uh, we ran an episode with an activist named Chandra Farley, 
who is the NAACP Environmental and Climate Justice Committee chair in the city of Atlanta, Georgia. And she mentioned how difficult it can be to engage communities, the communities that she works with, in the cause of energy justice because these communities are disadvantaged to begin with and people are frequently already you know overwhelmed with the job of simply making men you know ends meet you've noted in past discussions that people from the indigenous communities that you work with don't i guess say have the you know the bandwidth to address climate change because they're already dealing with so much i wonder if you could talk a little bit about this problem well i think indigenous communities are are particular within the context of Turtle Island of what we, you know, what's called, what's now known as North America, but for us, we call Turtle Island and we have very intimate, long standing relationship with the land. So we might not have the word climate change in English language in our communities, but when I go home and talk to my auntie, when we translated for the TV show into our language for, in Cree, we speak Mihiao, I asked my auntie, I explained to her, this is what climate change is. What would you, how would you translate that into our language, into Cree? And she said, protecting Mother Earth. And so that's why you see so many Indigenous peoples on the front lines, you know, like like people saw at Standing Rock. We see a lot of Standing Rocks all across, you know, Turtle Island and across the world where you see Indigenous peoples literally putting their bodies on the line, on the front lines to be able to protect what is the most sacred to them, which is the land. Because we have this reciprocal um, relationship where what we do the land we do it ourselves and these are very innate teachings that we've received from a very young from young age that we know that the land is what sustains us what gives us life um and so that's why for you you see indigenous peoples engaging in different ways we might not call it the ways in which say maybe settler communities will say um engaging in the climate justice you know or why wouldn't even say just climate change um i think it's indigenous peoples have been, you know, actually raising the alarm bell. Our elders have been saying the climate is changing, the earth is changing, the land is changing, the ways in which the observation of the ways we know our lands for thousands of years, millennia, these teachings that have been taught down of how we know our medicines, how we we know where to fish, hunt, and trap, pick berries, all the things, these are through millennia of observations, which is science. And so when you when elders have started signaling, you know, 40, 50 years ago saying the land, the earth is changing, the land is changing, the seasons are changing, something's happening. And that was, you know, the raising the alarm bell, you know, and that's why you see a lot of times the climate scientists working so closely with indigenous communities, because indigenous communities have been raising the alarm bell just as much as climate scientists are. So it's a different type of relationship, I would say, than other, um, structurally oppressed communities because um, we have a different relationship on the land. We haven't been taken from, stolen from the land, um, like unfortunately our African brothers and sisters were stolen and taken and, and forced to live in North America, whereas Indigenous peoples have lived here for millennia. And so that's why you see so many people standing up, like I said. And so it's, just, it's a different type of relationship. And, and so we see climate change in a different way, but we see it as similar that the, that that things are changing and that we need to take care and that we need to protect and that we need to steward in a different way. Um, because again, indigenous peoples have stewarded this land 
for millennia. And that's why it was in such pristine condition. And that's why we need our non-Indigenous brothers and sisters to really understand that what they do to the land, they do to ourselves. And so that's why we're having this impact of climate change. Yes, our communities are in crises to answer your questions, um, your question, but our communities are in crises because of the colonial policies that have really wreaked havoc on our communities. And we're still trying to address and deal with those colonial policies that have impact, but yet communities are still addressing the climate crisis. It just looks different and it sounds different and we might not use the same words, but communities really are when you see, when, when you hear about the revitalization of land or you hear about indigenous, um, you know, land back, say for instance, it's, it's literally about ensuring that the land um, is being taken care of and that it's being managed in ways in which we're not you know, exacerbating the climate crisis. Melina, here's a, a final question. Um, you know, this spring you participated in a panel discussion held by the Climate Center uh, that featured Indigenous leaders from Mexico and Australia. The challenges that were discussed during that panel discussion really kind of highlighted that that um, what the Indigenous communities in Canada uh, are experiencing is is not uncommon. Through your experience in talking with people from different places, what have you seen? What are the commonalities, the differences? How common is this problem uh, that we've been talking about around the globe? It's very commonplace. Um, I've had the privilege of traveling to Australia, to Mexico, to Ecuador, to different parts um, in Mesoamerica, South America, um, really across the world. And Indigenous peoples have experienced colonialism and the impacts in very similar ways. They're not going to be the same. There's very specific, you know, differences, but the impact of colonialism has a similar effect in terms of it is always attempting to remove the original peoples of the land off their land. And so, you know, and then it, it it's also about, um, colonizing the people and and the the mindset and the language and so it has an impact on just every aspect of somebody's life and so colonialism has an impact across the world and and what we've seen as well is that that also goes hand in hand with extractivism unfortunately and so what we what I've heard and talked to other indigenous peoples about both in Australia and Mexico, and also the other panelists spoke about the extractivism that was happening in their homelands, but also spoke about the concern of renewable energy potentially perpetuating those same inequities. And so that's what we're hoping with the Just Transition is to ensure that communities, again, are not um, facing the brunt of the impact of the quote development, but not receiving the the benefits really of that development. And so that's what um, we were discussing around what does progressive and inclusive policy look like in terms of transitioning to renewable energy. Melina, thank you very much for talking. Thank you so much for having me. Today's guest has been Melina Lubukin Massimo, Just Transition Director at Indigenous Climate Action and founder of Sacred Earth Solar. Thanks for listening to this episode of Energy Policy Now. 
To make sure you get future episodes delivered to you, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to keep up to date on all the latest research and events from the Kleinman Center, visit our website. Our address is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. And a note, this is the final episode of Season 6 of Energy Policy Now. We'll be taking a break in the month of August, and we'll be back in mid-September with Season 7. Thanks again for listening to Energy Policy Now. Have a great summer. 